If you would this morning, open your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. Mark's Gospel doesn't get a lot of attention during uh, Advent, but we're going to look at it this year. Um, Just by a quick show of hands, how many are already fully engaged in preparation for Christmas, either shopping or decorations or picking out your favorite cookies? In all, was it the cookies you were waiting to? Oh, you're ready. Okay, you're ready? That's disgusting. Um, in all of your preparations for Christmas, in all, think back over the years, have you ever suddenly been gripped by the fearful thought that Christmas might not come. December 25th would come and go and there would be no Christmas. It just wouldn't happen. None of us, right? That is just like the unthinkable thing. We'll just kind of hold on to that, that thought this morning. This is the first Sunday of Advent. It's the season of preparation. Uh, it should be both joyous and somber. Joyous because we are celebrating uh, our Savior's birth, that's a reason to be very happy, but also somber because we have to remember, of course, the cost, that everything about Christmas points to the cross and the resurrection. And if it doesn't point to the cross and resurrection, it probably really isn't about Christmas, it's about something else, right? So um, we're in the midst of that preparation, and Advent helps us do that. Um, it's this constant reminder there's a purpose to all of this that we do, right? And the first Sunday is, as Pastor Joyce has pointed out, Hope Sunday. Um, we've talked about hope a lot, not just Advent, other times of the year. The importance of hope, can't survive without it. That's a documented fact. We need it in order to survive. Um, hope has to have an object. We have to hope that, or hope for. Hope that is just hope really isn't anything, right? Uh, we've talked about the importance of hope as an anchor for the soul. Pastor Joyce referred to that, talked about that not long ago. What I would like to do this morning is really focus on what we base our hope on, well, ho what hope is and what we base it on, right? Um, there's that verse of scripture that has always given me a little bit of pause, the one in Romans 5, 5 that says, hope does not disappoint, or hope does not make ashamed. I've always struggled with that because there were things I've hoped for and they didn't happen, and I was disappointed, so what do you do with that? Well, that really speaks to the difference between a hope and a wish, and we'll talk about that a little bit um, more this morning. Um, what I'd like to do this morning on, on the theme of hope, and I really hope this works, is talk about a different word that connects us to hope, a word that has a lot to do with the basis of hope, how it is we, we find that anchor for our soul, what we anchor our hope on, and um, it occurs a lot of places throughout the New Testament, but where I'd like to start is here in the first chapter of, um, of Mark's Gospel. Mark writes of John the Baptist, uh, and he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming who's mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We have this marvelous marvelous season of hope, Lord, and it prepares our heart for the celebration and the somber reality of the incarnation, your Son, God, in human flesh, and all that that entails, Lord. And that's a lot, Father, for us to get our, our mind, our heart, our emotions around, 
Um, but help us to that end as we start this process, this season, this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. There's one word that John the Baptist used here that I really want to focus in on. It's critical to our understanding of the whole of the New Testament. It's especially critical to the understanding of, of Christmas. Uh, it's the foundation for our, again, for our hope. It's what connects us to hope. It's really common. It's one of the most common words in the New Testament. It occurs literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. I didn't count them. I looked it up, okay? So um, what I'd like to do um, as we, and I haven't given you the word yet, as we start to look at this word is first, when I tell you what the word is, I'll tell you what the word is in just a minute. And then I'm going to tell you how I came to know the word or how I, and why I just, I love the word so much, why I appreciate it. And then we're going to look at it in the context of the New Testament and specifically uh, the context of, of Christmas, right? The word is erchome. I all know the word, right? Erchome. A very common word. But again, before I tell you what it means, I want to tell you how I met it. Um, as you know, we lived in Greece for many years and I worked right downtown. I mean, downtown, downtown. I could come out of my office and there was you know, the Acropolis right there. Um, but we lived in a suburb for a couple of years, and then we moved out to a village for a few years, and that was marvelous. But that meant a pretty healthy commute, right? And so I had plenty of time while I was commuting. I see Dave was standing back there. He can appreciate that drive into Athens. He's nodding his head, yes. He didn't enjoy it. Um, as I was commuting, I tuned into the radio, because that was a really good way to learn the language, right, and the culture. I could, I could learn both language and culture by listening to the radio. The first thing I learned was the newsmen were not a good source. They talked so fast, I couldn't even begin to track them. But the ads were great. Because, you know, the ads, they have a vested interest in being understood. So they slow down, and they speak really clearly, right? And I also like ads because you can learn a lot about culture. Because, you know, people that write those ads, they know how people think and what motivates people and how we feel. And that's true in any culture. You can do that with, our, with ads here in our, our own culture. You know, it's not always pretty, but it's usually accurate. You know where people are at when you listen to ads. Uh, but I would listen to these ads and just, you know, when, when and you listen to the radio, you know when the ads are going to come on. You have a block of music and then you have ads, right? And when the block of ads would come on, my attention would just, you know, a little bit, and I would listen with anticipation what was going on, and I'd listen to the ad and try and figure out what it was for. And then on one particular day, I'm driving into town, and got the ads on, and I'm listening, and there's just nothing. It's just dead air. I thought, well, maybe something went wrong. And then I hear it. One word. Ergete. That means it is coming, or he is coming, or she is coming. What's coming? Ergete. Three times, nothing else, then silence. That was weird. I mean, it's obviously an ad for something, but I can't like go out and buy what they're selling. I don't know what it is. They didn't tell me. I thought maybe something was wrong. So I get almost to the office. It happens again. Silence. Silence, right? So I get to the office and I ask them, my Greek friends, did you guys hear that really weird ad? Yeah, we really heard it. We started to talk about it. Anybody have any idea what it's for? No, no idea at all. Nothing, right? Weird. Okay, fine. It happens continually. For weeks, it goes on. And the only thing that changed was it got a little bit louder and a little more intense. So that after like two or three weeks, it was like, it's coming. No idea what. 
Now, I could only drive every other day because that's how they control their smog, right? You had to take the bus the other day. So I would take the bus, and on the bus, I'd hear people talking about it. You know, maybe they'd have a radio and the ad would come on, and we'd talk, what is it? Nobody knows what it's for, right? Or if I wanted to really splurge, I'd take the cab. Cabs were great because they're cheap, and because, you know, you and the cab, you can talk about anything, right? And we'd talk about that ad. Everybody was interested. Nobody knew what it was for. And it was starting to get almost kind of frustrating. And one day I'm driving into town, listening to the radio, doing my thing, and there's that dead space, and I'm anticipating, but it didn't come. Which means it's already here. Still have no idea what it is. It's here, and I don't know what it is. So I'm driving along thinking, you know, this is not good for driving safely when your mind's totally distracted, let alone driving in Athens. And then I see it, this giant billboard. The day they changed the ad from Etikate to Eftase, they went through Athens and they put these giant billboards up of this brand new Fiat with the word Eftase. The whole time they were trying to prepare people for the arrival of this new model of fiat. Like, wow, that's not what I'm really interested in, but at least I know now, right? Well, going through that experience kind of gave me a lens for how I approached that word, because I kind of thought back after all of that on how I had processed that, how it had gone from, wow, I'm really interested. There was an interest that was generated by the way it was presented, to some engagement, thinking actively what it's all about, talking to people, and then kind of a period of speculation and expectation, and then when the car finally did, like, well, what makes this car so special, right? So there was a process that I went through thinking about that word, and I've, I've kind of imported that and applied it to um, how I read the text when I run into this, again, incredibly common word, especially how it's used in the uh, Christmas story, or more properly, in the account of the Incarnation. Um, one example, uh, where I think we're all familiar with the story when, when the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, it's Luke chapter 1 if you want to find it, and um, he comes to her and he says, Greeting favored one, the Lord is with you. He's got her interest. She wants to know what this is all about, right? She's immediately, whatever she was doing, she stopped doing it, right? The next verse says, she was very perplexed at this statement. And that meant her emotions were stirred up. You know the story in, in John's Gospel about the well where they're all waiting around the pool and it would say an angel of the Lord would, would trouble the water or disturb the water and whoever got in first was here. Well that word for troubling the water, that's the exact same. That's what's going on in her head. right? So she is very much interested and she is very much engaged in what, what the angel is saying to her. And, of course, we know what the angel says to her. Uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. There's some real expectations that are being generated here. Interesting, the word erkome is used twice in that whole event. First to describe the angel coming to her, and then later referring to the Holy Spirit coming to her. And Mary's response, Behold the bondservant of the Lord, may it be done to me according to to your word. There's that expectation. So, and I'm not suggesting that this, this is kind of, kind of a rigid formula. This is just kind of the way I approach the word, and it seems to follow through pretty well here. Again, just a couple of things. I've already said that the, the word actually occurs at the beginning and the end of the story, and it also occurs at a time when hope is in really short supply in Israel, right? You know, they're conquered people. 
They're subject people. Now, there was nothing unique about that. Um, most people under Rome were conquered people and subject people. Unless you were Roman, you were by definition a conquered person, a subject person. Uh, but the Jews took that another level. They're despised, utterly despised. And it's not just because, well, you know, the way Jews act. No, that's not it. Um, in, the, in the thinking of the first century, if, you know, every country has its gods, right? People thought of their gods in very regional kind of ways. And when one country conquered another country, I mean, how did, how, did, how did you make sense out of that? Well, on that particular day, your God was stronger than ours for whatever reason, or our God was upset with us and didn't fight for us. That's just how they, people saw. That was their lens, right? Well, the Jews, of course, were audacious to say that, no, 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 no. It's not a God over every country. Our God is over all countries. Our God is the only true God. Well, when that's your mentality and you lose it's hard to handle. There's not a lot you can do with it. And especially when you have, as the Jews did in the first century, kind of a track record of losing. They haven't been on top of things for centuries. With just a couple of short windows of time, they've been on the losing end ever since, like, the Babylonians, right? So it's not just they're a conquered people, they're a despised people, and they don't have a whole lot of external things to look at upon which to attach their hope. And yet, Mary is able to first heed what the angel says, process it, engage it mentally, and produce this very hopeful expectation. Right? There's a connection there. There's a connection there. And what's really significant, as I, as I used to process this, is that this hope that she has manifests itself in action. Immediately, boom, she's up and heads to her cousin Elizabeth. She acts on what she's heard. And what strikes me as so, so strange or significant is that when Mary goes to Elizabeth, this is still in Luke chapter 1, now we're in verse 39, the sequence of events is very similar when Mary goes to Elizabeth as when the angel came to Mary. This idea of somebody coming and talking about what is going to come, what is going to happen, right? And that process of interest, engagement, and expectation happens in their exchange just as much as it happened with Mary and her first exchange with the angel. Again, Elizabeth cries out, how is it that it has happened to me? The mother of my Lord would come to me. There's that interest and engagement. And then in verse 45, blessed is he who has believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. All of that is talking about engagement moving into a place of expectation, right? All based on somebody showing up, okay? But there's another element in here beyond just this, this simple framework, um, and please stick with me on this one. I'm going to take a little bit of a dive into the grammar here, but please do stick with me. Um, what do we actually mean when we say someone or something is coming? What does that actually mean, right? For example, when I say to you, Christmas is coming, what do you think? What, what's the information you glean from that? Actually, it depends on the time of year. If I say to you, Christmas is coming now, you say, of course it's coming. I know it's coming. It's almost December. And you are doing things about it, right? But if I say, Christmas is coming to you, and it's June. How do you react? Like, well, yeah, 
So what? Right? right? Because you're actually not thinking in terms that Christmas is coming. That's not what you hear. If I say Christmas is coming to you in June, you know what you hear? You hear me say Christmas is going to come. Christmas is going. Yeah, I know it's going to come. It's going to come in six months. But I don't engage with the idea that Christmas is actually coming in June. Really, it's just like it's a date on the calendar. I don't have any connection to it at all because in my mind, yeah, I know it's going to come, but it's not coming, right? And there's really an incredibly significant difference. You see, Advent is when we start saying Christmas is coming. When I tell you in June Christmas is coming, you hear Christmas is going to come, that's just like a progress report. That's just nothing, there's nothing more to than that. And the difference in our mind, the difference in our mind between what we hear in late November and what we hear in, in June is really kind of a delusion. Because the only difference between June and December 1st is proximity. That's the only difference. Christmas is coming as much in June as it is the 1st of December. The essential truth is Christmas is always coming. Christmas is coming as much on December 26th as it is on December 24th. The only difference is on December 24th, Christmas 2021 is coming, and on December 26th, Christmas 2022 is coming. One is a lot closer than the other, but both are coming. Now, I know you're sitting there thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Okay, uh, go with me, if you would, back to that Mark chapter we started with, because this illustrates it really well. And this is talking about John the Baptist. And he was preaching, and he was saying, after me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. He was preaching and saying, after me one is coming. Where was Jesus when he said that? Where was Jesus when John said that? He wasn't right there, but he was somewhere. He might have been over the next hill. He might have been in the next village. He might have been down the beach. Jesus was somewhere, and here's the key, he was moving towards John. He was somewhere, someplace, and he was moving towards John. That is the difference between Christmas is coming and Christmas will come. In this statement that Christmas or anything else you want to put there will come, that's static. See, Christmas might as well be static to us in June. But when we say Christmas is coming, Christmas is moving. And when John said of Jesus, after me one is coming, Jesus was moving. Jesus was moving towards him. See, these are the realities that this word, I am coming, speaks of. It speaks of something that, yes, is not here yet, but it is moving this way. The very simple fact that we're speaking of God is, and, and is evidence that there is movement towards us. When God says something is coming, that means it will arrive. 
that is infinitely more important than some lousy fiat. I think it's fiat, just not my favorite, right? When God says something is coming, the very fact that it's coming is evidence it will arrive. Which is why we never have to worry about Christmas happening or not. It's God's thing. It's God's idea. God makes it happen. So we never have to doubt its arrival. When the text says Christmas, or when, I'm sorry, when we say Christmas is coming, we never, we never doubt that it's coming. And that is what Mary got. Mary got the fact that with God's plan, there are no off-ramps. There are no exits. There's never been a plan of God where he said, this is what I was going to do. Circumstances have changed. I changed my mind. This is what was going to happen, but given the situation, we're going to do something different. No. When he says it is coming, that means that is all the evidence we need when he says it is coming, that is all the evidence we need that it is going to happen. And here is why that is so absolutely critical. If we were just talking about stuff in the past, it wouldn't matter. It would have no significance at all. But that's not what we're talking about. Because in Revelation 22, verse 12, Jesus said this, Behold, I am coming quickly. Behold, I am coming quickly. And my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. That does not mean the time of my coming is approaching soon. That's not what that means. What that means is he is already on the way. Any visual you or I may have of Jesus sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father waiting for Dad to say go, it's wrong. Wrong. He's on the way. He just said it. Revelation 22, he said it. I am coming. If you're into the grammar, that's present active indicative. He is presently in the process of doing it right now. He said, I am coming. He's already on the way. The word quickly just means he's moving at speed. There must have been an awful lot to do before he gets here. The simple fact that he is coming assures us that he, in fact, will arrive. And if you have any question about it at all, look at the next line. He says, my reward is with me. He already has it. And the reward he refers to isn't his reward. It's the reward he will give. It's the payoff for every man, woman, and child that has ever lived. To those that have done good and served him, there is reward. For those who have lived in evil and denied him, there is reward. So if you want to bring it in, and this almost sounds sacrilegious, it might even be. But if you want to think about Jesus' return in terms of Santa Claus, the sleigh is already moving. Let that reality just soak in a little bit. We think about Jesus' return Use the Santa Claus imagery. The sleigh is already moving. And the bag in the back is already packed. With everything for every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, the reward, the results of a life lived, the equaling of the balances, the settling of the debts, 
that's already in the back of the sleigh. And that sleigh is moving. To render to every man according to his deeds. So, when you're shopping, when you're putting up Christmas decorations, when you're doing all the stuff that you would do at Christmas, you do that with the knowledge that Christmas is going to come. Should not our confidence in the reality of his return be every bit as solid? Should not our interest, engagement, expectation be as thorough with the concept of his return as anything else we might choose to think about, right? I guess another way to put it is this. Um, is there anything I do any day, any day, this time of year, everything we do, that's, that Christmas thing's in the back of our mind, right? I got the shopping, I got the gifts, I got, that's always, that's that, that's that tape running in the back of our head, right? Because we know it's coming, right? Put that big picture. Is there anything I, anything, one more try, any day that I spend that is not spent in some way, shape, or form in preparation for his inevitable and coming return is a wasted day. Anything I do, any day, rather any day that I spend without doing something to prepare for the arrival of that sleigh is a wasted day. The reality of his return should draw as much confidence as much conviction and have as much, at least as much influence on our action as the knowledge of Christmas. So, not so much what are you doing for Christmas this year, what are you doing for his return this year? Father, I thank you for your word, Father, this very, very simple truth. And Father, my prayer this morning is that I didn't take a simple truth and make it complicated. Um, if I did, I pray you'd help us sort that out that you are indeed, your son is indeed on his way. He is returning. There is an inevitability about that. There is an assurance in that. Lord, the fact that it's God who said it, the very fact that you said it is all the proof we need it will happen, Lord. And so, Lord, oh, God, I pray that our days will be filled with faithful obedience to your word with the understanding that everything we see in this world, Father, is so passing. Everything we see in this life is so transitory. The Christmas lights come down, Lord. And we get back on with the Father. That's not how it's always going to be. And that's certainly not how it's going to be with regards to your return, Lord. Our Savior said he is coming. And his reward is with him. Don't ever want to forget that, Lord. Help us. Let's stand together and worship him this morning.